Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror Podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we are heading into the inky darkness of the history of maritime special operations, or special maritime operations, or special operations maritime. Well, you get the picture. We're talking clandestine, amphibious, specialised, elite, independent, subtle, and above all, eye-wateringly courageous, ocean and river-based operations in the Second World War. It's the history of the SBS, the Special Boat Service. To find out more, I spoke with the military historian Saul David, author of numerous fabulous books on the military past and whose most recent book is on, you guessed it, the SBS. And it is called, you guessed it, SBS, though it does have the subtitle Silent Warriors. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoy talking with him, a long-time companion of mine in the world of public history, a born entertainer with an eye for a story. Here is the incisive, the charming, a true historical performer. Here is Saul. Saul, thank you very much indeed for talking with me today. Thanks, Sam. Delighted to be on. So why the SBS? Why did you suddenly uh, alight on this wonderful topic? Very fortuitous circumstances. I have noticed, Sam, that some of the uh, big breaks in my life in terms of subject matter, uh, the odd TV documentary, have come about due to someone else's misfortune. I shouldn't really be chuckling because um, rather wonderful uh, character um, uh, and former SBS uh, man, uh, and that, of course, is Paddy Ashdown, had been working on this project. And the fact that he is former SBS himself, he'd served in the 60s, is relevant because the SBS is a very secretive organization, much more secretive than the better known SAS, the SBS, of course, being the sort of maritime equivalent. And they uh, had authorized the book that Paddy was going to write. And tragically, he died in, in, in midstream. So uh, the question was, who's going to take it on? Uh, and it was, I suppose I was in the very p- fortunate position of not only being uh, agented by the same person as Paddy, but also in the same publishing house. And I, I think they felt that um, 
I might be an obvious choice and, and a relatively safe pair of hands. But it wasn't that quite that simple because I then had to go on a quite a lengthy vetting process with the uh, special boat service itself, which is a rather trickier hurdle to overcome. <laughs> but I got there in the end. They don't, they don't let anyone write about their history. Is that the problem? Yeah, it is the problem. I think, you know, I, well, there, definitely there was a, um, a, a feeling, I think, among the service and among the association, which, of course, looks after its heritage, that now was probably the time to change. But they wanted to do it in a, in a safe way. And they wanted, it to, as I say, to, it to be done by a safe pair of hands. And, of course, an insider like Paddy, who'd written about some of the operations already, uh, probably the best known one is Operation Frankton, uh, and that's the Bordeaux operation, uh, was, you know, their, their first choice. But um, Paddy was no longer available, uh, but they still wanted the project done. I think, generally speaking, the SBS um, feel that, I mean, they're very proud of their history, but they're also wary that if books like this are written, this may trigger a kind of cascade of former operators uh, writing their own thing. So they've always been very wary, too wary in my view, because, um, uh, and the MOD too, it won't let anyone uh, officially write uh, uh, about special forces operations after 1948, which is pretty ridiculous in my view. I mean, even some of the, um, uh, even some of the secret services um, have been uh, allowing material later than that. So it seems unduly cautious in my view, but that's their position. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't make you join so that you'd be one of them. Well, they they sort of did in the sense that I mean, certainly I was um, I, I I was taken down to pool or invited to pool a couple of times. On one particular occasion, they got me in the water. Um, you know, I went out in in what is the equivalent of a full boat or a canoe. Um, so they were very much trying to give me a kind of, I don't know, window into how they work. And, and actually what was very useful for me to get a sense of, of the ethos and how the ethos uh, still remains to this day. And it's very under the radar. Their, their missions are, are, have a purpose, of course, but they're not to go in and kill and cause mayhem. They're usually to go in and surgically take out uh, a target and, and hopefully with all the operators getting away afterwards. So they operate in a very different way to the SAS and all, always did, even from these early years in the Second World War. It's interesting you were saying that, um, you know, it's important getting their backing. And that's not a matter of principle because they, they literally guard their own archives. So it's not as if you could have written the book anyway. Yeah, that's right. And I think there are two important things. I mean, the archive was crucial, of course, for obvious reasons. But in some ways, there wasn't as much material Sam and that archive as I was hoping for uh, but nevertheless there was enough crucial material but more importantly than that I think to get a proper understanding of the organization which is you know as we both know very shadowy very sort of uh, closely guarded um, it, it meant that it was important that, that they open their doors of course to write an authorized book brings its own problems because you feel as a historian uh, co-opted to a certain extent I mean it's not an official history but authorized does mean that you're uh, uh, you've been welcomed into the fold to a certain extent uh, and I think even if it's unconsciously you feel a kind of you know a, a need to do you know to do good by that organization uh, and you have to be wary about that sort of unconscious bias as we might call it yeah very tricky um did you get to interview people and talk to people as well as read uh, read documents i did but uh, sadly there's only one single and uh, he died very recently one single member of the uh, of the wartime sbs still alive when i started work on this in 2019 and that was a man called jim booth 
who took part in one of the most extraordinary operations of the, the war, uh, and that's Operation Gambit, which was the uh, the D-Day midget submarine mission. Um, you know, he it's and what is even more amazing, not only, of course, did I have to have a chance to speak to Jim, he was 99 at the time and eventually got to his 100th birthday uh, and only died um, in 2022. But also, he provided me with a little bit of footage of the midget submarine operation, uh, which, as far as I'm concerned, is the only piece of footage of special forces in the Second World War. And it's extraordinary. It's as the submarine is coming back from the beaches, where it's played an absolutely vital role in marking Sword Beach, uh, and it's going back to the command ship. And you can see Jim Booth and this piece of footage standing on the top of this tiny submarine. I mean, it's a remarkable uh, piece of um, uh, of Second World War uh, footage, as I say. Yeah, it's actually an interesting place to start with D-Day. Let's do that. I mean, what do you mean by marking Sword Beach? Why were the SBS important on, uh, on D-Day? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the sort of all great unknown stories of the Second World War. It's not that it would never been written about before, Sam, but as you know, a lot of history falls through the cracks, not because it's not included in some obscure book somewhere, but because it hasn't really entered the public consciousness. And I think the role of the SBS on D-Day was absolutely vital. They do they do three things, really, that, that are, are noteworthy. First of all, they carry out the beach reconnaissance prior to D-Day, which is absolutely vital to getting all that information about the sort of uh, type of sand, whether it can bear uh, tanks and wheel vehicles, but also the gradients coming up to the beach. I mean, when you're going to uh, carry out an amphibious operation, you need all this vital hydrographical uh, uh, information. You also need information about the the defences on a beach and the exits from the beach. And the SBS carry out all these uh, vital reconnaissance uh, missions by swimming to shore, incredibly dangerous operations. Some of the swimming was done from midget submarines and some from surface craft. And they brought back this cornucopia of, of information which enabled the planners, and we're talking six months before D-Day, to put in place, uh, you know, uh, and to refine their plans. And one really key bit of the story is that when they discovered the uh, the strength of the defenses on Omaha Beach, uh, and this was in January 1944, it encouraged the Allied High Command uh, to increase the number of landing beaches from three to five. I mean, it's the well-known story that there were originally just three, and people like Montgomery were pushing to increase the numbers, but the, the key bit of information came from the SBS, uh, and they said to the Americans, look, it's going to be a really tough nut to crack. So from that point onward, the Americans uh, went from one beach, which was Omaha, to two with Utah. Yeah. So a fairly sophisticated uh, operation here at the end of the war. Let's rewind and go back to the beginning and look at the origins of the SBS. Where did it come from? Well, it came from this amazing character called Roger Courtney, who, um, you know, had really been a kind of adventurer. He wasn't a soldier, wasn't a military man at all. He'd done a bit of TA work. He'd been a part-time soldier in the early 1920s. But he'd always wanted to go to Africa. Uh, he gave up his job uh, working as a in a bank in Leeds, uh, and he headed off to Africa with fifty pounds in his pocket, which was not nothing. But uh, you know, eventually it was going to run out. And he spent the next twenty years effectively as an explorer, gold prospector. And here's the really key bit: he, uh, as an adventurer and as an explorer, he decided to paddle in a a, a folding canoe known as a folbot. Uh, which he'd bought from Selfridges uh, 
down on the, <laughs> I know, you, you couldn't make it up, down the White Nile River uh, alone. Um, you know, so many moments during it, which he later wrote about actually in a, in a book that, that was quite a successful book. Uh, and But what this enabled him to realize is that a fall board, a, a canoe in effect, uh, was a perfect means of insertion for uh, silent insertion at night uh, for enemy shorelines. I mean, he could see the, and also he became expert in its use, so that when he joined the commandos in 1940 uh, at the outset of the war, he quickly suggested, the commandos of course were set up by Churchill as a, as a raiding force for enemy coastlines, but uh, Courtney refined that further by saying, look, if we, if we create a new unit as part of the commandos initially, uh, which uses canoes as a form of insertion, we can do what the commanders aren't intending to do. They're going to go, a lot of them are going to go in. There's going to be a lot of bang, bang and explosions, but we can go in silently and we can carry out missions that they, they would never be able to dream of. Uh, and we can do it and get away uh, without the enemy knowing we've been there. And the Navy aren't entirely convinced about this. Um, they were in charge of training up in, in Vareri in Scotland. So they set him a test. Can, can he actually approach a command ship, one of their, one of their, one of their assault ships, uh, even though the, the sentries are looking out for him uh, and effectively blow up the ship by marking chalk on the outside of the hull where the limpet mines would be and, and even get on board and, and take away a gun cover to prove he'd been there and that's exactly what he did uh, and they were astonished. wow and they thought for goodness sake you know the guys are all ready for you and they didn't notice you coming you got on board and all of a sudden they could see the stealth that was uh, possible by using canoes there are drawbacks with canoes of course Sam, which is that in high seas you know when you're operating in the in the sea as soon as the, the wind gets up about four or not and the and the, and the uh, waters get choppy they can be very unstable and and, and quite dangerous frankly but nevertheless uh it, properly trained uh, they began to see the possibility so they allowed him to set up what, what was known as a full bot troop um just uh, 12 strong to begin with and this eventually becomes the special boat section and then it develops in lots of different ways in, in lots of different tentacles um one of the tricky things about the book actually was trying to make sense of all the different um and interlocking bits of the story because it's not just courtney and his sbs uh, there's also something called cop Combined operations pilotage parties set up by a guy who was uh, a close colleague of courtney's uh, a man called Lieutenant Commander Wilmot, who is another of the big heroes of the story. And there was also the third strand, which was the RMBPD, uh, the so-called cockle shell heroes. And that was set up by Blondie Hasler. So you've got these three big giants of the story, Courtney. That's Wilmot. the Royal Royal Marine Boom Patrol Detachment. Exactly, is that correct? Exactly. You've, you've got to have a you've got to have a stomach for acronyms when you're working on the special forces in the second world war because they and a lot of the acronyms of course including the one you've just you've just mentioned rmbpd were, were uh, used to put the enemy off what the real intention of these units was so they were never you know specific to their task but they were kind of alluded to they, they would try they, the attempt was made to, to make them seem far more benign and and you know incompetent than they actually were so um, there was such a, a wonderful story, but my favourite bit about that was Selfridges, and it makes me wonder what it would have been like there. Do you reckon there was a 
well, I think there are three options. One is that there was a folding canoe department. Uh, two, that there was some kind of implausible adventuring department, or maybe even specifically a White Nile department. <laughs> well, what's going on there? Well, definitely, um, I think the sporting department. I think the, the point to make about the folding boats is, of course, they were eventually used, as, as, as we are discussing, uh, for serious military purposes in the Second World War. But they were very popular uh, among canoe clubs, basically, particularly in Germany, actually. But also these, bega these began to uh, gain some ground in the UK as well. So Selfridges were, was providing a kind of civilian sporting um, uh, kit, really. So it would have been their sporting department. But it, but it is fascinating. In the archives at, at Poole in Dorset, the SBS archive, you can still see the original docket from from uh, oh, from from the shop that that uh, you know he paid for. And I think it was something like £22, which is not an inconsiderable amount, actually. Yeah, it just makes me think of people wandering around Oxford Street with loads of weird stuff coming out of Selfridges. Anyway, uh, it does lead us on to a kind of a more broad question about about the kit, kind of specialised kit that they use. You mentioned limpet mines. So we've got, um, you know, folding kayaks, limpet mines. What else was involved? Well, I mean, the first and most important point to, to make is that at the beginning, there was no specialist kit at all. I mean, they were just making it up as they went along. So so the folding boat, of course, was a civilian folding boat. It was later developed, actually, in particular by Hasler into, and they turned it into something, you know, really quite sophisticated with, you know, what you might recognize, I suppose, a modern kayaker or canoe, which is the, you know, the kind of splash deck and and the forms of stabilization which made these these boats a little a little bit more stable in choppy waters. But uh, the other crucial things that the SPS needed, of course, were particularly when they got in the water. So. In a nutshell, a lot of the missions would be carried out, particularly reconnaissance missions, by two guys. So it would be a two-man canoe. One guy would stay in the canoe while the operation was carried out, and the other guy would get into the water and swim ashore. Now, you know, eventually they got wetsuits, um, which were reasonably effective, but it took time to develop them. So on one of the first missions, which was carried out by Courtney and Wilmot, um, very dangerous mission, uh, reconnaissance mission, in uh, the Mediterranean. Now, you might think, great, the Mediterranean, the sea would have been quite warm. But of course, the time of the year it took place, which was March 1941, it was absolutely freezing. And at that stage, they had, they were just making things up as they went along. So instead of a wetsuit, which didn't exist at that time, they were just wearing woolly underwear, basically, uh, lined with some kind of grease to try and keep out the cold. And the end result of all of that, of course, is that even though Wilmot was an excellent swimmer, Courtney, not so much. Uh, Courtney, almost drowns on that operation because he gets so cold and he can hardly you know find his way back to the canoe so they were really making things up as they went along and slowly but surely the the equipment got more sophisticated as the war went on but in the early years 1940 1941 1942 it's incredibly dangerous to carry out these missions because their their kit was so uh, threadbare Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Let's talk about a couple of those early operations or, or sort of follow the history through. Um, Rhodes, why was Rhodes important? Well, Rhodes was really the, the testing ground of, of whether or not you could use canoes uh, to get the sort of information I've been talking about, this, this beach reconnaissance information. Now, uh, Courtney, of course, had already set up the Fulbot troop and he'd gone out with the rest of the commandos in early 1941 to the Mediterranean. And while he was there, he met Wilmot, who completely separately had come up with the idea of beach reconnaissance. Now, uh, Courtney's idea was we're going to do sabotage, we're going to insert enemy agents, there's going to be a lot of other stuff that we can carry out but Wilmot all along was absolutely convinced partly because he was the nephew of a man who'd taken place in the Gallipoli landings uh, that these sorts of amphibious operations would be disastrous unless you had proper uh, information and the way to get that was actually sending guys in so he knew what he wanted to get uh, but he didn't know he didn't have a method of insertion and so meeting Courtney was incredibly fortuitous because Courtney told him about the canoes and he thinks great we'll be transported in submarines as far as the beaches and then we can paddle in uh, in the canoes it all sounds rather straightforward but if you consider it was taking place uh the roads reconnaissance which of course was axis held at the time and there were there were plans in place to capture roads by amphibious assault it never actually took place because of the greek debacle a few months later but that's not the point the point about the reconnaissance is can we actually show we can get the information that is going to be needed for these types of operations so the two of them carry out the operation and if you think about it you've got these two giants of the story who almost come across i mean they almost get bounced by centuries at one point i've already mentioned the fact that courtney almost dies of the cold i mean it was incredibly dangerous for these two men to carry out this operation with inadequate kit attempting to home to a submarine in the dark um, in freezing temperatures. I mean, a lot could have got, gone wrong. A lot almost did go wrong. And yet over the course of four nights, they managed to penetrate the uh, Italian defences at Rhodes and bring back an astonishing amount of information. You can still see the report, which is actually in the uh, National Archives. It's been released in the National Archives today. And it gives you the, you know, the kind of sense of drama that that mission was. But it also convinces everyone in the Middle East, uh, in particular in Cairo, HQ in the Middle East, that actually this is a runner. These guys can really do what, what they say they can do. So it was proof of concept, uh, I suppose you would say, Sam. And in that sense, it was absolutely vital because once uh, this mission had been carried out, uh, the two guys go their separate ways. Wilmot's eventually going to find COP, which I mentioned before. And of course, Courtney's going to carry on developing the SBS. Um, but they have proven to the higher-ups that it really can be done. 
Yeah, and so strategically important. I mean, the Italians are using this island to attack Allied shipping, lay mines. You know, it's, it's crucial to everything that goes on. Um, let's move on to uh, 42. There are a couple of really interesting operations in 1942. Boulogne is one. I like the, the fascinating story of this. Yeah, I mean, the Boulogne, the Boulogne one has really, um, again, like a lot of these SBS stories, I don't quite know why, but it, it, it's also slipped through the cracks. I mean, we, we know about other, other operations, of course, that took place that year. The most famous one was the attempted assault at Dieppe, the disastrous assault at Dieppe, which, by the way, uh, Sam, they use no SBS uh, reconnaissance for, a, a bit of a mystery that. But uh, Boulogne takes place a couple of months earlier, uh, and it's an astonishing operation because the channel ports, as Dieppe proved, were probably some of the most heavily guarded installations in Europe at that time. And inside Boulogne Harbour was a tanker filled with copper ore that the British had decided they needed to knock out because they were, these are vital resources for uh, Germany. Uh, and the SBS decides to do the mission. A guy called Gerald Montanaro, who for a brief time was second in command of the SBS, very ambitious man, a former Royal Engineer, who uh, is an explosive expert, but he also is uh, absolutely determined to get to the top of the special forces tree he's actually his way is ultimately barred of course by courtney who, who's got there first but montanaro's finest hour is this mission at, at boulogne where he volunteers with his paddler uh, a man called priest and together the two of them are going to carry out the mission now the difficulty you've got in the channel as opposed to the mediterranean for these these uh, secret night missions is that you can't get close to a shoreline with a typical submarine, which is what they'd use for the roads reconnaissance. Um, the 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 weather conditions and the and the coastline is is too difficult to use a big submarine. So you have to use surface craft. And the problem with surface craft is that if it gets too close to the coastline, you can hear it. So basically, you have to paddle a lot further than you would if you'd come in in a submarine. And this is where the trouble starts with the Boulogne operation, because they dropped off three miles from the shoreline. Uh, and by the time they get to Boulogne Harbour, they're utterly exhausted. They then have to get past the fort at the uh, entrance to the harbour where a party is going on and they're basically paddling almost completely lying flat in the canoe uh, and the beer bottle narrowly misses the boat I and mean, that's how close they came to uh, this German installation. And then real disaster happens because the, uh, the Fulbot is snagged on a rock and it starts leaking. Now, this is this is now a race against time. Montanaro has to make a decision. What's he going to do? Is he going to abort the mission, which frankly would have been the sensible thing to do? But no, this was his one chance. So he tells Priest to plug the hole with his cap comforter, the sort of woolly commando hat these guys used to wear. Uh, and then he breaks the uh, the time fuses on the limpet mines, which means there's no going back now. They're going to explode within a few hours. Uh, and they carry out the mission, put eight limpet mines onto this tanker. One falls off, but seven are inserted correctly. And then they've got a home back to uh, this surface craft, which has been told to leave on the dot. And if they get it any later than that, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're going to be abandoned. Well, they're an hour late. Um, and as they're approaching the rendezvous point, which, by the way, they've only got to because of um, Montanaro's brilliant navigation. I mean, in choppy seas at night. I mean, it's an amazing feat of seamanship. But it's also an extraordinary act of endurance because by the time they get to the rendezvous point, the canoe is half full of water. Uh, and it would probably have sunk, they estimate, in another 10 minutes. And of course, they're in the middle of the channel at this point. So that would have been a death sentence. 
but incredibly fortuitously, uh, the landing craft has stayed longer than it should have done against uh, its orders. And they're picked up. They're so exhausted, they can't actually get out of the canoe. They're so cold, they have to be lifted out by a winch. But it was an astonishing little operation, which succeeded. The, uh, the tanker uh, explodes and it sinks to the bottom of Boulogne Harbour, losing a lot of its, its vital uh, uh, kit on board, losing a lot of its copper ore. And uh, the two guys who carried out the mission, uh, they were awarded with a DSO and a, a DCM, respectively. And there's a lovely little entry in Montanaro's diary. Uh, and he talks about, you know, went on this mission, almost sank, uh, but managed to pull it off, you know, a, a damn good show. You know, it was just so British and understated. Yeah, I mean, extraordinary seeing their faces when they realised that they'd, they'd hung around and they, they'd managed to pick them up. That must have been wonderful. So we've spoken about roads in the Mediterranean. We've spoken about the Channel and, and Boulogne. Let's talk about, you know, the, the final big theatre we haven't really mentioned. What was going on in Sumatra? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the lovely thing about the story is that you might imagine, because it's special boat service or special boat section, as it was known at the time, and, you know, they were operating out of the Mediterranean, and then the UK, that it was really just the European theatre uh, uh, of operations. In actual fact, in 1944, Mountbatten, who's now been appointed uh, commander in the Far East, but, but has always been a big fan of these maritime operations. And he had, of course, been chief of combined operations under which some of these operations were carried out. He said, sets up a new group in the Far East called the Small Operations Group, and it's based in Ceylon. And it carries out a number of different missions all over the Far East and some wonderful stories. But my favorite is the Sumatran mission. They're given the job of blowing up the Pudada Bridge. Uh, this is Japanese held. It's a sort of vital ar arterial uh, route. It's a road and rail bridge over the Pudada River in northern Sumatra. Uh, and this, again, is going to be a pre preparatory to a landing on Sumatra, a landing that in, in this case, of course, never takes place, but that was the intention. And so a team of SBS, four uh, pairs of canoeists in this particular instance, are taken across the Bay of Bengal, this incredibly long and uncomfortable journey. And I should just mention, Sam, I don't know if you've ever been in a submarine, but Second World War submarines were incredibly inhospitable places to operate from, uh, particularly if you're SBS, because you weren't really a specialist, of course, a, a specialist submariner. You were just being transported and utterly terrifying when they were being depth charged, but incredibly uncomfortable, difficult journeys they had to undertake. And this was a very long one. Anyway, they close in on the on the location uh, and they get to the right place and they're dropped off four teams of canoeists. But the first uh, night's attempt is an absolute disaster. They basically an error is made in the navigation. They get to the wrong point. They go up the wrong side of the estuary heading up towards the bridge uh, and it's impassable. And eventually they have to call the mission off and they head back to the submarine, which is, again, always done at night, homing to a submarine. Very difficult uh, and dangerous operation to do uh, with no tangible uh, results. And they are convinced, and uh, you know, not only is this embarrassing humiliation, but they're convinced that, you know, that's it, that's the end of the mission, you can only try it once. But actually, uh, they realize that, or, or at least they make a calculation that the Japanese almost certainly didn't 
uh, spot them that, that first night and maybe none of the locals did either and they can give it another go now the second night's operation goes much is much more effective and it's led really by uh, i think the hero of the story a man called lieutenant wesley now wesley's second in command but he he convinces his boss major sitters that he really needs to take the lead in terms of navigation he does get them to the right place they managed to uh, get all the way to the bridge with 400 pounds of explosives, having narrowly avoided detection by a uh, Japanese cycling patrol. But they get to the bridge and they're putting all the all the uh, plastic explosives onto the bridge in various key uh, uh, parts of the bridge when they're spotted by some locals uh, who just appear, you know, as if, you know, now this is the middle of the night, remember. So where these guys come from, no one quite knows, but they're corralled under, under gunpoint just in case one of them decides to run off and tell the Japanese. And once they put all the, uh, all the explosives on the bridge and the time pencils are set, they head back down to the beach, of course, to get back to the canoes. And the idea is, you know, obviously they're going to home to the submarine, but they've still got the locals with them because, again, they don't want them to tell the Japanese. And when they get to the beach, Siddhas remembers that he'd been given this instruction. If you find, a, you know, if there are any locals there who you might think can provide vital information, bring them back with you. Now, exactly how they were going to do that is not entirely clear because there's only room for eight people in these canoes. But anyway... They decide they're going to take one of them back. So maybe they're going to do two trips in a, in a full bot. Uh, so they uh, select a, a young guy who, uh, once he realizes what's about to happen, has absolutely no intention of going and struggles wildly. Wesley's given them the job of subduing him. First of all, he tries to punch him, just knock him out. That doesn't work. Then he hits him with his revolver. That doesn't work. Uh, and eventually he tries to, as he puts it in his diary, drag on some of the life out of him. And this kind of ridiculous wrestling match in the sea, uh, which comes to a conclusion when the uh, the Indonesian fights uh Wesley's hand and forces him to let go of him and it's at this point that Wesley realizes this is absolute madness we, we we've got to let this go so he pats this guy on his back as he puts it <laughs> you know a, a poor compensation uh, uh for all the hardship we put him through uh, they let him go they get into the uh, canoes head back to the submarine and as they're nearing the submarine they almost miss it actually um it almost turns into disaster they see this kind of red glow on the horizon and boom the bridge goes up. So there's a happy ending to the story. But one, one last codicil to all of that is that, you know, I, I've noticed with special forces operations, they're really sparing at giving out the sort of awards that you might think would be justified. Uh, and in this particular case, this extraordinary mission, a single military cross is handed out. Who does it go to? Not to Wesley, not to any of the men who really carried out the key roles in this, but to Major Sidders, who, who clearly is the man who's put the report in in the first place. <laughs> well, a great story and a brilliant place to end. Uh, Saul, thank you very much indeed for sharing uh, so much great history. Yes, um Thank you all so much for listening. Now, please don't leave your interaction with our brilliant podcast here. There is so much more you can do. Firstly, please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube channel, where you will find a library of the most extraordinarily innovative videos showcasing the maritime past in entirely new ways. If you are interested in the Second World War, as we were talking about today, please check out our 3D animation of one of the Japanese aircraft carriers that took part in the attack on Pearl Harbor, and our video showing the scan of a 
wrecked midget submarine on the shore of Aberlady Bay in Scotland. In the audio podcast's back catalogue, make sure you listen to our episode on the shifting balance of naval power during the war with Paul Kennedy. We have an episode on the evacuation of Dunkirk and one on the U-boat war. And in fact, there is so many more I haven't even mentioned. This podcast comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. Please check out what both institutions are up to. You can find the SNR at snr.org.uk where you can join up and please do so. Every single new member makes a difference. It's a wonderful chance to make new friends and to learn about the maritime past from the world's best. And the History and Education Centre of the Lloyd's Register Foundation you can find at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and be sure to check out their brilliant new project filming the world's best ship models with the latest camera equipment. To find it, just Google Maritime Innovation in Miniature.